The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 14. This message was given during the evening service on September 25, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Continuing for the sake of those listening remotely to this, this sermon series on podcast or the website, I'm continuing our series on a joyful suffering faith, salvation, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, where Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, in this being our salvation, verses 3 to 5, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by trials. He's moving us from salvation issues in verses 3 and 5, joy over salvation issues at the beginning of verse 6, into really an overriding theme of this entire epistle. Grace, empowerment, and joy, enablement to suffer. And he's driving us now into the first introductory issues concerning suffering as Christians. And there are four marks in verse 6. Even though now for a little while is one mark, Christian suffering is temporary. For a little while now means in this life. Mark number two is if necessary, what we're currently in, Christian suffering is necessary for the Christian to grow in holiness. Mark number three is, which we may get to tonight started, you have been distressed. And mark number four is the variety of suffering that we will face. The temporary nature, little while. The necessity, the word necessary. Trials bring distress. That is extremely important uh, that we understand what distress is in the, in the future here in Mark number three. And how does that differ from uh, anxiety and depression? Distress, anxiety, depression all can result from suffering. We need to see what the difference is because this distress is not sin here. But I'm getting ahead of myself, as Randy would say in his Sunday school class. So let me back up. Mark number two then is necessary. As I've said before the recording, for those listening remotely, we don't know exactly when, we don't know why we may specifically as believers be suffering certain circumstantial sufferings in our own lives, but the Bible plainly gives us enough ammunition to know why all believers will suffer. And so in the note sheet it says, what is necessary to be accomplished in our lives through suffering? And suffering is necessary, as we've seen already, number one in your note sheet, to humble believers and make them teachable. We've seen scripture on that. Number two, suffering is necessary in general to wean us off worldly things. Number three, lastly, last Sunday night we saw that suffering is necessary to teach us to value God's blessings as opposed to whining over life's pains, and we saw scripture related to that. Number four, new material tonight. Suffering is necessary to enable us to help and pray for others. Suffering is necessary to help, enabling us to help and pray for others. What does that mean? God has you and I suffering so we can help others that are suffering. We're not just to keep it to ourselves. When we learn things about suffering, we pass it on. I've been able to give Pastor Sam some of the things that Sue and I have gone through, though I am not in the situation he is, Sue was the one who was experiencing the cancer. I at least could give some insights from the point of view of one who loves somebody experiencing cancer as I love him as a brother and some of the things that we've learned. And this has been a great help to him as we suffered. I can at least from my position of helpless watching of my wife going through that, give some advice to him on the sovereignty of God and what he's doing. So this is number four. 
The great New Testament passage that teaches us this fourth reason why God allows suffering is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So write that down under number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and turn over there. This is a familiar passage. In fact, I read, in fact, I read this many times at funerals, at wakes or in the funerals that I do. After his introduction in 2 Corinthians, he starts to move into the issue of suffering. It's interesting that he does that because he, suffer, he has been suffering terribly at the hands of the Corinthians. There is no church that persecuted Paul more than the Corinthian church. When you read both of these epistles, you can kind of gather that there were five letters he wrote to this Corinthian church. Only two survive. Why is that? Because they were the only two that were inspired. But he refers to some unknown letters that he had written when you carefully study that issue in uh, First and Second Corinthians. He's, he's pouring a massive amount of time in dealing with this rebellious church that basically is turning on him when he's the one that led them to Christ. Anybody can turn on anybody in the body of Christ. We can't say, oh, because I'm a Christian, I go to a church, nobody's going to turn on me. This is not true. I mean, you've got to be pretty low and pretty bad to turn on the person who led you to the Lord, as the Corinthians are doing to Paul. When a person backslides, the brakes are off. There are no holds barred on a person being in a mode of betrayal and attack. So, 2 Corinthians is his inspired defense of his apostolic ministry. You go to verse 12, for our proud, proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Why would he say that? They're attacking him. He's not holy. He's not godly. He is evil. He has false intentions. He's got fleshly wisdom. False teachers in the Corinthian church were attacking them, attacking him. So he's having to defend himself. But when you go back earlier, right after the introduction in verse 3, he starts in on the issue of suffering. And this is what is the point of what I wanted to bring us to. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. We've studied mercies and what mercy is in 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, which we'll pick up again in two Sundays on the 8th or 9th. Father of mercies, pity over our miserable condition is basically what mercy is. And a God of all comfort. Comfort there is used ten times in these four verses. Three, four, five, six, seven, five verses. That word comfort is used ten times. So what do you think verses three to seven, the theme is? Comfort. Affliction is, is mentioned multiple times as well. Sufferings and affliction. So this is about comfort and affliction. Notice comfort is mentioned once in verse three. It's mentioned... Three times in verse 4, comfort is mentioned four times in verse 4, actually. Comfort is mentioned once in verse 5, three times in verse 6, and once in verse 7. Look at the words for suffering. Mentioned twice in verse 4. In verse 5, mentioned once, sufferings. Verse 6, afflicted is mentioned, and the word suffering. Verse 7, sufferings is mentioned. This is comfort in the midst of suffering. Okay, now look what he says about comfort and suffering. He says in verse 3, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Comfort is a marvelous word. It, it's perichalasis. It means to encourage to come alongside someone. 
He is a God that comes alongside. He lives within us, but it also is the idea is near to us. We have to remember this when we're suffering, to come alongside. Now, it can mean in some contexts comfort here. It can mean in other contexts the word paraclesis can mean to come alongside to exhort or admonish somebody. And this word affliction, which is used in verse 4 twice, is, as I've mentioned before, one of the major words for crushing pressure and trials. Philipsis, T-H-L-I, Philipsis. And uh, this is referring to a crushing pressure. And um, so the comfort is piggybacking next to the crushing pressure. Now, the one who does the comforting is God, in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. And here's one of the reasons. So that, verse 4, we will be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the sad realities is carnal believers who are under trial and suffering, they become insulated and they turn in on themselves. They become extremely narcissistic and don't see outward of their conflicts and sufferings. And because they're not walking with God, if they're carnal, they, they waste the suffering with no ability to either witness to the lost or the ability to comfort others who are suffering. It's like a carnal believer will act like they are the only ones suffering in the entire universe. But see in verse 4, this is a major reason. So God comforts the one in affliction so that we will be able to do the same thing that God does for us. As God comforts us, we comfort others. Well, how does God comfort us? Gives us endurance, as we will see. Gives us strength. Gives us the ability to have joy in the midst of suffering so we can demonstrate that endurance and strength and joy to others that are suffering. Giving them hope that they can get through their trials. We can give advice to them, even admonishment, so that we can show them that this is part and parcel of what every believer faces. So he says there, so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is the outworking of help. When I suffer and I learn from it and I grow through it, I can help others. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We're, we're to flow with massive comfort towards others that are hurting. So the purpose of the suffering is we find comfort from God, and then it overflows as we look out from our own trials to help others. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. See? See, I'm under affliction and suffering, so I be, can be a comfort to you. And this is unconditional love because they really hate him, the way they're acting towards him. It's amazing that he would say this. This is unconditional love of our enemies. It is for your comfort, verse 6, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you will be sharers of our comfort. Even these carnal Corinthians were suffering because they were Christians in a pagan environment. Hebrews 13. So a good prayer for a believer who's growing is, Lord, this severe suffering that I'm under, help me not to waste it. Help me not to waste this trial. Help me to look outward and see who I can minister to like you've helped me, Lord. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let the love of the brethren continue. That's a command. We're to love the brethren. And uh, 
Then he gives examples. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Strangers in the New Testament context are, are not some, uh, you know, crazy guy off the street. You know, it's like the demon-possessed guy that Wednesday night, oh, let him in the church. Let's wrap our arms around him and just love him. No, we lock the doors and we call the police. So that's not what stranger means. I went today after I left the house. I was uh, so swamped I didn't finish the sermon and the sermon savers till like 10 to 6 tonight. And uh, I had to get gas in my marquee, so I, <laughs> I usually go to the mobile because it's more reliable and cheaper, but I thought, I, I don't have time. And uh, my, my marquee is a nasty little gas gauge on it. Once it hits quarter of the tank, it stops there. So after that, you don't know how much gas you have. So it's Panicsville, when, and it's been like a week and a half sitting on quarter of a tank. So I'm going to go to the first gas station. So it's like that low-life Luke, whatever that is, cool hand Luke or whatever it is. I pull in there, and I'm pumping away, and I'm looking to the right, and this guy is standing next to me, and he's just staring at me. So, of course, I look down. It's the first thing a guy does when somebody's staring at him. And so I'm like, oh, this is strange. So then I look ahead, and there's a guy standing over by the wall. Now, there's nobody else around me. There are, I'm the only pump guy pumping, and he's staring at me like this. I'm like bracketed. So according to verse 2, I should invite them into my house. No. Strangers in verse 2. And of course, I had to get my receipt because these places around here never have receipts for you. So I had to lock up my marquee. I don't know why I did that. Nobody would steal it. But anyways, I had to walk by this one guy. And as I'm walking towards him, he's staring at me like this into the facility. I thought he was going to hit on me for money. So I was going to give him my expired credit card. That'll teach him. Just seeing if you're listening. Anyways, so no, verse 2, strangers refer to traveling Christians who need a place to stay. They're impoverished. They don't have a home. They don't have a hotel. They don't have credit cards. This is extremely important. Hospitality has to do with needy believers who are in distress, traveling maybe in persecution. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I know those two creeps at the gas station weren't angels, unless they were the dark side type. And then another group that were to love that is suffering. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. That's why the biblical motivation, why we're praying for them, our brothers and sisters on Sunday night. We try not to ever miss that opportunity. That's why Val is so impassioned to make sure if a website closes down for Voice of the Martyrs, he searches to get me something else. Because of verse 3, this is a mandate. Remember the prisoners, there's no in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, maybe not in prison, suffering. Since you yourselves are also in the body. This is the point. This is what we're called to do. One Puritan said this, Affliction also quickens the spirit of prayer. Thomas Watson said, Jonah was asleep in the ship, but at prayer in the whale's belly. Perhaps in a time of health and prosperity, we pray in a cold and formal manner. We put no coals to the fire, and we scarcely are minding our own prayers. And how should God mind them? Then God sent some cross or other to make us stir up ourselves to take hold of him. When Jacob was in fear of his life by his brother, he wrestled with God and wept in prayer. It would not leave him till he blessed him. This is simple. Write it down under number four. When you are suffering, don't just pray for yourself. Think of others that are suffering and pray for them. 
Suffering drives us to lose ourselves and to pray for others. Number five in your note sheet. Fifth reason why God allows suffering in general for believers, why it's necessary, according to 1 Peter 1.6, it helps purge us of our sins. Helps purge us of our sins. Let's start from left to right. Go to the book of Job. Job chapter 5. A lot of these, friend, these friends of Job, they got his situation wrong, totally, except the last one, Elihu. He kind of hit the nail on the head. The, Elihu, the fourth friend, basically spoke truth in a hateful, arrogant way. So God let him off the hook when he uh, chastised the other three. He didn't say all four, he said just three. But um, these first three, uh, sometimes, you know, they hit nails on the head right. They said some things that were correct. And this is Eliphaz speaking. And he gives a truth in chapter 5, verse 17. It just doesn't apply to Job. So he spoke a truth that had nothing to do with Job whatsoever. So look at what he says in Job 5, 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So who does Eliphaz think is being reproved? So the idea is terrible physical scourgings mean that God is chastising. So if any of you get sick, it would be like me coming up and saying, oh, oh, you're, you're sick, okay, so you're, you got this pain, you've got to go to the hospital, or you need this or that. Oh, so, you know, God's chastising you. can't assume that. How would we know that? Could be, but we don't know. These guys just assumed He's laid waste, he's sitting in ashes, he's scraping his boils, God's nailing him. Well, no, it was Satan. Got this completely wrong. But what he's saying is true. Just not for Job. How happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. That's true. It's just worthless advice to Job. He wasn't in rebellion. So why is it good to be reproved? So, because the point here is, it gets you right with God. Okay? Let's continue to the right. We're going from left to right, as good politicians should do. Luke 15. Luke 15. So, who doesn't want help with... Dealing with our sins and getting them out of our lives. Do you ever pray to God? Uh, God, I, I really wish you'd empower me, enable me to stop doing these besetting sins. Anybody prayed that one? So guess, guess what you're praying for? Trials and suffering. That's right. Very good. Well, then I'm not going to pray for that anymore. Oh, sure. Then just get just torched by your own rebellious sin then. Yeah. You can't avoid this. If you want God to help you with this sin, this is one of the ways he does it. And, of course, this is the story of the prodigal in Luke 15. So he's in a pigsty. And he's eating, uh, verse 16, filled the stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. You've got to be pretty bad to do that, right? Now, hunger can do terrible things to human beings. We know from the fall of Israel in the Old Testament, they start eating their own children. Wouldn't you just think that you'd, you would uh, rather die than do that? Well, from what I've read medically about star advanced starvation totally alters the brain chemistry and 
messes up a to- you become almost delusional and rabid and uh, so you have uh, the situations that horrible Donner's Pass that occurred in the 1800s in the Old West and uh, eating of humans, the horrible crash of the airplane in the Andes Mountains, same thing, type of thing. Well, this guy is moving in this direction, the son of the, the prodigal son, and he, in verse 16, he's eating the food from the, the pods, and just imagine the filth and mire he's in. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, now who makes a person come to their senses? Not themselves. This is God. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. None of us have ever died with hunger. Okay, <laughs> me least of all of anyone in this room. I'm dying when I run out of uh, Land O'Lakes American cheese. Did you buy some? Anyways, so I am dying with hunger. He's true. He's telling the truth. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Two individuals he sinned against, God and his Father. It is always the outcome with true believers in rebellion when they repent. Notice this is restoration. There is no relational restoration without repentance. And as I said last Sunday morning, time doesn't remove sin. If you sin against somebody back in 1980 and you never repented of it, It's still in force. The idea that time heals all sin wounds is nonsense. This is as if it was brand new when he sinned against his father. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. What drove him to do that? God did. What did God use? The pigsty. The pigsty. Look at the humility, verse 19. That's reason number one for suffering, by the way that you wrote down, it's in your note sheet, to humble. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is what he's saying to himself. This is his plan. I will get up. I'm going to go to my dad. I've sinned against God. I've sinned in your sight. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. There's no defense here. This, is, this reads very much like King David. When Nathan confronted him, what did he say? I have sinned. I I'm fatigued tonight in memory of all those that none in our church currently in the past who, when confronted by their sins, had all these excuses, all these reasons. That's not true repentance. He doesn't even care what others think about him. He knows how wicked he is. And then he puts action to his intent. That's extremely important. There are believers who say, oh, I'm going to make right with so-and-so, and I'm going to make right with God. I put it on my agenda. I'll do this next week. Lord, you know my heart. I'm saying it. I, I'm going to make right with you, and I'm going to make right with it. I'm going to do it. It's on my day timer. And then they blow it off. But what does he do in verse 20? He gets up and comes to his father. And, of course, his father is one who stood waiting for him. Notice how the father didn't chase him down across the planet. He saw him, and why would he feel compassion for him? Can you imagine what he looked like? Probably lost dozens and dozens of pounds. The guy looks like a total wreck. If you're living in a pigsty, are you going to look good? Can you imagine him just in rags, covered in mud and pig poop and all the rest of it, just completely haggard and walking across? And this father loves him and sees him? That's God, the way he sees the loss that we witness to. He's still evil. This man's evil. The son was evil. He's not a victim here. He chose this. 
And he knows it. That's why he says, I've sinned. Don't, we, we pity the lost, but we don't pity them by saying, oh, oh, they're just victims of somebody else's bad intentions. No, man is sinful. We are sinful. And so we certainly have suffering in our lives to drive us to repent of our sins. This is the way we should come to God. Suffering should wake us up to the sins we're playing with. And we should do the same thing. I've sinned against you, God. I'm not worthy to be called your child. I'm dragging myself with the, the weight of my sin. I can't fix everything. I'm asking for your forgiveness. This is what suffering's supposed to do. So few Christians professed learn this lesson from suffering. That it's meant to expel evil out of their lives. Hebrews 12, from left to right, I told you, left to right. Going to Hebrews 12. And this is the famous passage on church discipline. I, in my opinion, this is a passage, historically in our church, there is massive blindness towards. I continue, even to recently, not uh, seeing that Christians just aren't getting the lesson of Hebrews 12. There's an essential historical fundamental blindness to this in our church. What's the blindness? A true believer in rebellion gets church disciplined or disciplined by God. Every single time. And yet, over 35 years, I have people telling me, yes, I know they're in sin and rebellion, but at least they're saved. I know they're saved. Well, how do you know they're saved? They made a profession. That is irrelevant. The proof is not the profession. It's the discipline. Verse 4. We're supposed to do verse 4. When we don't do verse 4, we're in trouble. Hebrews 12.4. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. That's a verse I was tempted to use this morning in the sermon. For those believers who think that sin's not a real big deal, why do we need all these sermons against sin? Well, how about verse 4? You're supposed to be shedding blood in your striving against sin. That's all-out warfare. I think sin's a pretty big deal. Well, I think I've done enough with my sin. I, I asked Jesus, I'm sorry, but, you know. I spent like 10 seconds the other night, and I said, Jesus, you, you know, you're, you're the good man upstairs, and I've done, I know I've done wrong. Oops, you know, made some mistakes, but thank you for forgiving this. Okay, very good. That's not what's going on in verse 4. Striving. This is astounding. It's a boxing term. Your sin, you are in a ring, and I am in a ring with our sin, and neither one is leaving. You and your sin are in a war. You're warring against your own sin. Striving is a boxing term. You stand in opposition against your own sin. Your sin is your enemy. And we're to fight against it. Resist, tooth and nail. Tooth and nail. Those are boxing terms, by the way, that uh, Mike Tyson certainly subscribed to in one of his uh, championship bouts when he bit the ear off of uh, Holyfield. Tooth and nail. You scratch and bite. Scratch and bite. Do whatever you can in boxing to take the opponent down. Scratch him, bite him. Scratch him, bite him. Tooth and nail. That's what the striving in boxing term is about. You strive against sin. All-out warfare. But there are those who claim to be Christians that don't do that. So verse 5 pops up. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Do not take regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So do not do that. You've forgotten. You're not fighting sin in verse 4 the way you should. And on top of it, you've forgotten exhortations. This is a notorious problem for professed believers. 
The word forgotten means to forget completely. It's got a prefix ek, E-K, attached to it, which means out of the mind. This is what Christians do with sermons. Out of the mind. Completely forget the exhortation, which addressed to you as sons. And then the command, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Lightly means to think little of the discipline of the Lord, or faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Now notice, he scourges which son? Every son whom he receives. So when you have a believer who is not fighting sin in verse 4, forgets the word of God and exhortations that are lobbed at him in verse 5, regards God's discipline lightly, in other words, what's the big deal if God strikes me? This is a rebel. Faint when reproved. The idea there is, oh, why is God doing this to me? Well, you're a rebel. Then the Lord moves into scourge every son whom he receives. That's why I have taught you, and this is a blind spot in our church, not with everyone, but with more than a few, it is a continuously strongholded idea. If someone talks like a Christian and has some outward actions like a Christian, but they live like the devil, they're still saved. The idea is they talk like a duck and they walk like a duck. Guess what they are? A duck. That's not true with Christians. That's true with ducks. Okay? No. Christians fake it. Fake believers abound. And how do I know if someone in rebellion is either backslidden as a true believer or an apostate fake? He scourges every son whom he receives. How does he scourge him? Go down to verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and what? What happens if you don't resubject yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? So the scourging brings death. Not creeping old age, as I've taught you. This is a blind spot to such an extent over years in our church that I've just stopped admonishing people. I say, well, how come this person's not dead? Well, they claim to be able to. I can just see the, I can see the blindness in the eyes as Christians talk to me. But I'm confused. They claim to be safe. So what? Even angel, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The proof is the scourging, and it happens quick. If they don't repent and submit, God executes them. If they go year after year without ever dealing with their sin, not repenting, not dealing with it like the prodigal son, they're hell-bound apostates. It's a horrible thought, but it's true. They're enemies of the cross and enemies of the church. That's why we want to make sure when we're suffering for anything in our lives that we better make sure that we're not treating God and his word lightly. It should wake us up. I'm suffering. Maybe God's chastising me. What's wrong with me, God? I want to know. Please show me my sin. An apostate doesn't do that. Apostate would say, who are you to judge me? Apostate gets angry when confronted. That's that taking lightly. How dare you say that to me? Who do you think you are? He who casts the first stone. They always never finish that sentence. I love it. I always said, no, no, wait, wait. What's the rest of that sentence? That is improper grammar. 
It's not he who casts the first stone, dot, dot, dot. Okay. I'm ranting. Cease and desist, John. Okay, I will. The point here is, why does he discipline us? Verse 7, that you endure. Endure what? The faith. You grow in the faith. In fact, endurance is the number one major godly virtue that God wants to bring out of us through suffering and personal discipline. It's restoration to walking with God. So that tells us right here that he purges our sins if we're true believers, and if we don't repent, he'll chastise us unto death. The scourging is physical because of the word live at the end of verse 9. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. It's a restoration of holiness. If there's no discipline, so take all the professed believers we've known in 35 years I've been here in the church have come and gone, in your family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, movie stars that you know, whoever they are that claim to be believers and they live like the devil. And they've never repented. They don't get their lives right with God. They've done terrible things to you and to others. And they pretend that time has just removed the consequences when it doesn't. Because you have to repent to be restored. And ask yourself a very simple question. Where's the scourging in this person's life? And this is not an unbeliever who says they're unbelievers. These are what we would call individuals who adamantly claim to be born-again Christians. Not Catholics or JWs or all the rest. The ones who really act like wheat when they're tares. And you look at them and you go, this person's been going on like this for years. There's no, there's no change in their lives. There's nothing. Either God's word is wrong and in error, like I said this morning. No, verse 6 is in error. This person claims to be a born-again Christian, lives like the devil, never been chastised, but I know they're saved. Verse 6, that's your interpretation, John. Really? Let's look at that verse 6 again. How do you spell the word every? E-V-E-R-Y, right? Is that my interpretation? Huh? No. So if a person is not dealing with sin, verse 4, uh, dusts off exhortations and admonishments and confrontations, verse 5, laughs lightly at the discipline of God, especially through churches, and pretends swoons before Jesus. Oh, it's just so hard. Faking it. They get scourged. Every son whom he receives to produce repentance. And if they don't repent, they die. And they die quickly. Well, I don't see any of this happening. That's right, because we see very few backslidden Christians, as I've told you many times before. Number six. Strengthens our spiritual character. And with this, we will close. You see, as Thomas Watson said, affliction purges our sin. It's God's medicine to expel Pride and the fever of lust. The water of affliction is not to drown us, but to wash off our spots. And when we repent, oh my goodness, endurance just explodes. A return to faithful service, faithful witnessing, helping others that are suffering.
Left to right again. Four passages. Romans 5. Number six, we suffer so that strengthens our spiritual character. You want to know who are tough as nails Christians? One who suffer dealing with their sin and continue to live for Jesus Christ. Tough as nails. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 3. We exult in our tribulations. Kakeamai. We hold the head high. The idea is, I'm glorying in suffering for Jesus Christ. Knowing, not feeling, that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance, endurance, same thing. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope. Now, this is an interesting thing, if I remember correctly. Hold your place there. And go to Second Peter one. Okay, Second Peter one. Now I want you to think about what you just read in Romans five. So go like this with your smartphones. You can do that with your smartphones, right? Yeah, okay. Romans five. Tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. Do you remember that? Uh-uh-uh-uh, contradiction in the Bible, because 2 Peter 1 says different. Look at 2 Peter 1. Verse 5, now for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control what? Oh, wait, wait a minute. Romans 5.3 says tribulation brings perseverance. 2 Peter 1.6 says self-control brings perseverance. Yes. Remember back number five, what does suffering do? Point number five, purge your sins. That's self-control. Self-control is when you're tempted to sin, you have a divine capacity to say no. So suffering brings, purging of sins brings self-control. So tribulation, suffering, brings self-control, which adds to the perseverance. When two different things produce the same result, two causes produce the same effect. When tribulation and self-control, two different things, produce the same effect, endurance. They're partners. They're synonymous. Tribulation is meant to produce the ninth fruit of the Spirit. Help us to resist. We don't even care about sin anymore. We're so sick of it. We're suffering so much. Who cares about trash in this world anymore? It creates self-control. That brings endurance. They partner together. It's mar marvelous. Again, endurance, just like Hebrews 12. Second Thessalonians. I said four passages. We've seen two of them, two more. Second Thessalonians. This is spiritual character. This endurance. Tough as nails. Don't you want to be known as a tough as nails? No matter how you suffer, Christian, you're going to show joy and you're going to continue on with perseverance living the Christian life and not giving up. Don't you want to be that? Sure, I want to be that. You want to be that. We've got to pay the price. It's through suffering. Second Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your what? There it is again perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions 
which you endure. Their reputation is one of no-quit endurance. They just keep going on. This is called outlasting your enemies. This is called just keep at it. Just keep serving. Keep witnessing. Stay in the Bible. Doesn't matter the suffering. I'm not going to give up. Endurance is hupamene. It means to remain under affliction. Nobody is going to drive me away from Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Nothing is going to make me quit out of God's will. And lastly, James 1. This is what suffering is meant to do for us. How sad that so many professed believers never learn this lesson of endurance. It always goes back to endurance. You just saw it in Romans 5. You just saw it in 2 Peter 1. You just saw it here in 2 Thessalonians 1. Now look at James. James 1, 2. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Hupamone, same thing. Sole purpose. And let endurance have its perfect result. It matures you. Endurance is you just simply don't quit. Do you wonder why we see Christians just fade out? You know why, right? Sin. Sin is never dealt with. And it's usually some hassle in their lives. Somebody did something to them. Some trial happened. I quit. I'm done with that church. I'm done with this. I'm done with that. They're quitters. Why? Because the sin wrecked them. Why did it wreck them? Because they didn't let the suffering purge them of their sin. They didn't seek spiritual character in the midst of the suffering. And along with this James 1, I said only four, but James is just one book, so I can look at another passage in James and still fulfill the rule of only four passages. It's my interpretation. James 5. What do you call a person who is blessed in verse 11? You count those blessed who what? Heard the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. The word quit is never in the vocabulary of a godly, suffering Christian. It is one of our worst swear words. Well, what do I do? Remain under the suffering with joy in Christ and enduring hard as nails. This is the Roman soldier who had no armor on the backside of his body. It was unthinkable to the Roman soldier to turn and run. It went into battle forward, always forward. James 5, 11, endurance is a blessing. So who wouldn't want these six things? Humility and teachableness, number one. Empowered to reject carnality and worldliness, number two. Make God's blessings more valuable to us. We really love the blessings of God, number three. Who doesn't want to have their eyes turned to help others and pray for them rather than be whining and obsessed about ourselves? Who doesn't want deepened repentance and victory over sins, number five? And who doesn't want strong as iron, enduring godly character? Oh, we all want that. We just don't want it by suffering. You don't get those six things without suffering. We'll finish off with Thomas Watson. Through affliction, we begin to look after our spiritual evidences and see how things stand between God and our souls. Suffering takes us more off from the world and calls us off the pursuit of earthly things that hinder us from pursuing the spiritual and eternal things of life. You really want to be a heavenly-minded Christian? Then you are earthly good. One of the all-time satanic Christian statements is, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. That's right from the pit of hell. He's so heavenly-minded, he doesn't care about the earth. He doesn't care about the things of this life. 
He stands firm and stands strong in the grace of God. No quit. No quit. Forward all the way. No one is going to take me out of God's will but myself. And I know that the suffering that God has in my life, I may not know specifically why it's there, but I know six reasons why it's there. I need humility, teachableness. I need to be less carnal. I want God's blessings more in my life. I want to help others and love them more. I want to have more of a repentant heart and victory over sin. And I want strong as iron endurance and godliness. And guess what? A loving God says, if you want all that, you have to suffer continuously. It is necessary. Now you know why. It's necessary to produce virtue. Do rebellious Christians want those things? No. So rebellious Christians run from suffering because they could care less about spiritual virtues. That's Mark number two. Next Sunday night, we go to Mark number three. And uh, the bottom there says, what is the point of the second mark? It's very simple. You have to face, pick your suffering is basically the blank you can fill at the bottom. As I've said many times in sermons, pick your suffering. You're going to suffer, so you need to yield to it. Next Sunday night, we are going to be distressed. Well, I thought we were supposed to have joy. Yeah, but you're going to be distressed. How do I know the difference between distress, worry, anxiety, depression? I thought I wasn't supposed to have any grief and suffering. I thought I was supposed to walk around like this. Isn't that what joy is? No. So we're going to pick apart this word distress and then search down in the scriptures and see, can I be distressed, have joy, and not sin? The answer is yes. That's confusing. We'll let the scriptures sort it out for us next Sunday. Father, may all suffering end this week for all of us as believers by you calling us home. We want this world done. We want to go to heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.